The following material is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. You can find out more about the Institute's work by visiting www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, it's great to be here. Privilege for me to participate in this uh, conference and especially to have this kind of little track that we have uh, called Quest for Life uh, here in uh, room two. The sort of mandate that I've been given for these few sessions, we have three sessions today, viewing the cultural landscape, then we're going to be thinking more about engaging the con cultural landscape and then the transformation of it in a Q&A uh, period. The, 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 the mandate is a difficult one because I want to leave some time at the end of each, each session for questions and, and interaction. So I'll speak for about 40, 45 minutes and then there'll be an opportunity to ask questions. So if you're mindful of that, you might want to scribble some of those down because I'm going to try and leave time for that at the end. Uh, of um, this session now this morning. Viewing the cultural uh, landscape. It was very telling the slides that uh, Dr. Fenske threw up there, the real doctor, uh, in showing us there a picture of probably Haringey Crusade, I would imagine, in, uh, or somewhere like that. Uh, I remember uh, my grandparents talking about the Billy Graham Crusades of the 1950s where thousands and thousands of people night after night after night were packed into major football stadiums in London and then the challenge that we face today where the very idea of mass evangelism for the most part is seen as um, impossible uh, to achieve to accomplish because the residual Christian worldview has has dissipated I like to say that the contrast from then to now in our culture is very much like the difference between Acts chapter 2 for the Apostle Peter and Acts chapter 17 for the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter gets up and he's able to preach quoting the Old Testament prophets uh, and 3,000 are converted in a single day uh, because in part the people that were there to listen to him were Jewish proselytes. That is, they were people from all over the known world who believed in the God of Israel. They had a broadly biblical understanding of reality. And what they needed to be, to be shown was that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Paul in Acts chapter 17, when you fast forward 15 chapters there, is now in, instead in Athens at the Areopagus, well, actually, he first is looking at a city filled with idols, he says, and he's troubled in his spirit. And he's debating in the town, in the city, uh, with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. We won't discuss the meaning of that in detail. Uh, and he's invited to defend uh, his position uh, before the Areopagus Council. And there, as Paul um, speaks, as he preaches, he doesn't actually quote directly passages of Scripture. He's not quoting from the prophets. But he is bringing up the foundational issues of a scriptural worldview and contrasting it with the Greco-Roman worldview, in particular the, the view of reality that was held by the Epicureans and Stoics. And Paul, who was raised in Tarsus, which was a center of learning, it was a center of Greek philosophy, he knew the cultural landscape which he was engaging. He was able to quote their philosophers and their poets, and he was able to contrast a scriptural philosophy of life and a scriptural understanding of reality with theirs. 
And you'll recall the reaction was not 3,000 being converted in one day. It was some scoffed. Some said, we want to hear you again about this. And some of the most prominent members of the council believed. That's like turning up at Harvard to speak to the faculty and some of them becoming Christians. So this was not a failure. This engagement was not a failure. But it was a different context into which he spoke. Now at the foundation of Paul's and the scriptural view of reality, we have, I'm going to read to you from uh, Colossians chapter 1. I think this is one of the most important passages of scripture in identifying the root, the foundation of what uh, we believe. Colossians 1, beginning at verse 15. Speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all the fullness, all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Now, Paul is thought of as the apostle to the Gentiles, because Paul is the one who takes, primarily is the one who takes this gospel now into a heathen, into a pagan, into a different cultural landscape than the one that he had initially been laboring in, in the synagogues and amongst uh, the Jewish people. Now, a way to begin this uh, um, simply is to think about uh, the way in which uh, world and life views are formed and how they shape our thinking and our culture. Uh, One of the, I think, most helpful illustrations is to recognize that the things people do with God's creation, let's think for a moment about technology, uh, technological developments often track with or reflect worldviews. They reflect our vision of reality, how we're thinking about the world. In the ancient world, generally speaking, people thought about the issues of truth and knowledge. They viewed things, as it were, in terms of world encounter. That was their perspective on reality, that you encountered the world as a given. And so, for example, um, the, the technological development that best illustrates that era is the invention of the plow. The plow, a very important invention. In fact, the way the plow changed, changed the economics of Europe. That's another story. But the plow recognized that there were laws or norms established 
in the created order that they encountered as a given that if you plow up the ground and put seed in it and you wait a few months, there is seed time and there is harvest. That there is a regularity, there's an order, there's a structure to the world and we can harness that structure and get crops. Now in the ancient world, generally speaking, that's how people thought about knowledge. You encounter it in the world. It's a given. With the period called the Renaissance, and especially with the Enlightenment, there was a shift from the idea of world encounter as a created given to a dispassionate world viewing, as though you could stand back from the world and analyze it as though you weren't really a part of it. This idea of a rational objectivity. And uh, the technology that illustrates this quite well is the, was the invention of the telescope. Actually, the children of Dutch spectacles maker Hans Lippershey, I think, were playing around in their dad's workshop and accidentally discovered the telescope. And then Galileo uh, developed it and trained it on the skies. And then there was the development of the microscope. And we began to think of knowledge and understanding, re- understanding reality in terms of world viewing and a sort of scientific, dispassionate standing back from everything. And now, um, we've moved from the era of world encounter and then world viewing into a a time of world making. World making. Where people tend to see the world as something which, well, the world is your oyster. You decide what is true. You decide what is right. You decide your identity. You define yourself. It's the existential mood of our time, that we are a choice in essentially in a meaningless world where you are a choice and you must define yourself and everything about yourself, the world and so on. And the technology which actually best illustrates our view of reality today is cyberspace, the digital world of fiction where you can create yourself, create your own image, create a digital reality, live increasingly in a digital reality, have a million Facebook friends and throw a party and two people show up. Where you can really be whatever you think you want to be. That's the kind of transition that's happened since the time of the Apostle Paul. Now, in the midst of all of that, though, human beings have always felt recognized, even the existentialists, that we are creatures, that our condition as human beings is a given. We can't escape it. We can't escape being human, and we can't escape the fact that you know and I know that uh, we didn't cause our own existence. We didn't call ourselves forth into the world. That even now, you're not causing yourself to live and breathe and have your being. You don't know how much time you've got. You don't govern history. You didn't govern, you didn't determine the place of your birth, the time of your birth, who your parents would be, what your proclivities would be, what your nationality would be. None of that was determined by your choice as such. We're conscious that we're creatures. And what scripture tells us is that everyone stands coram deo, that is, before the face of God, that we are creatures, and that most basic to us is that we're not rational creatures, we're not political animals, we are religious beings. That that at its root, what defines the human person inescapably is their creatural reality and their relationship with God. That knowledge of ourselves, knowledge of the world, is intertwined with inescapably our relationship with God. 
That means that every single person that you know and everybody out there must take some kind of Archimedean point. Archimedes was that fellow who said, give me a really long pole and a place to stand and I'll tilt the universe for you, right? I need to be rooted somewhere. Now, everybody must be rooted somewhere, must have some place to stand. That's the religious foundation of all thinking, of all living. It's the foundation of world and life views. Everybody has one. Now, how does a worldview work? Well, worldviews are, world and life views are actually not something so much that you look at, although we can begin to reflect more self-consciously on our worldview. They are something you see with. So very unconsciously, usually people have their world and life view, their faith perspective, cemented to their nose. So they're not even always that aware. They've not self-consciously worked through the assumptions and the presuppositions that are at work in their thinking as they ask any of the most basic foundational questions. And those basic foundational questions are essentially origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Where am I from? What's the meaning of everything? How should I live? Where am I going? How's it all going to end? Those sort of ultimate worldview questions. And we're answering those with a set of lenses cemented to our face. Worldview works very much like a jigsaw puzzle. You remember those before there was Xbox and all that kind of thing? People used to do jigsaws. And if you tip out a 2,000-word jigsaw puzzle on the table, what's the first thing that you do? You do the edges, right? You find the corner pieces. First of all, you turn the pieces over generally. And then you do the corners And then the edge, you build the framework. And from the framework, you fill in the picture. Well, a worldview is a bit like a framework. It's it's that from which people start to fill in the picture of how they're going to live their life. Now, in Scripture, for the Christian, our our comedian point, you know, where we stand, our root, is in the person of Jesus Christ, Colossians 1. He's the creator of all things, visible and invisible. When the scripture says, when Jesus says, I am the truth, that's big T truth. He doesn't mean I can point you to the truth. I can show you some truths. He's not talking about discrete truths here and there that I can make a true statement about my Blaine's, my friend Blaine here sitting on this chair. What Christ is saying is that the root of all knowledge, of all reality, is myself. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Or as Paul says in Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And so Christ in the gospel of salvation is coming to reconcile, to restore everything back to God. And that begins with our thinking, right, with our hearts, with the root of our being. And Scripture actually tells us, and this is very cursory, very introductory, but Scripture actually really tells us that in terms of the religious root, in terms of the religious basis of all of our thinking in the world, there are only two ultimate worldviews. That's a really helpful way to boil it down, isn't it? With all the complexity of philosophical and religious ideas, there are really only two ways of viewing the world. And Paul tells us what they are in Romans 1. There's the worship of the creator, or there's the worship of the creature. Right? There is either an orientation and faith in God, who is distinct from the world, 
who created all things. We worship the creator. Or, Paul says, we will worship something created. Some aspect or aspects of creation are absolutized. That which is actually relative, created, is absolutized and put in the place of God. My, uh, one of the fellows of the Ezra Institute and my friend and colleague, Dr. Peter Jones, who's a, a, an expert in pagan thought, pagan cosmology, has said that these two ultimate worldviews, Christianity and uh, anti-Christianity, he says they can best be summarized as oneism and twoism. So actually, when I was speaking at this conference, I took a picture of the name of the conference and sent it to him. But he said, oneism... Oneism is basically the idea that all of all there is, reality, the totality of reality, is the cosmos. It's everything that is. And that everything that is, is somehow divine. Right? It's a substitute God. It's the divine per se. That's one view of reality, that something in creation or some combination of things in creation, that in the end there is no creator God who is distinct from reality. This is the absolute uniqueness of the Christian gospel. That is oneism. Twoism, he says, is that there is a God, a triune, self-sufficient God, who of his own free volition called into being everything else outside of himself. And that he has established his norm, his law for creation. And you run up against this all of the time. When you feel guilty about something, you're running up against the ethical norm that God has established in creation. If you um, decide you're going to jump over the escalator to the next floor down, you run into the law that he's established for for motion in reality. And the the ways in which we can then uh, identify the problem of how we know things in the context of these two worldviews is actually quite simple. Again, before Xbox and before uh, Wii and so on, there were join-the-dot puzzles, connect-the-dot puzzles. Do you remember those? Yeah? Some of you younger people actually remember those? Oh, good. Right? And that was when you taught a child to draw, to recognize shapes and objects and things. You have these dots on a page, and usually the dots have a number next to them. And as the child connects those dots usually needs to be in the right order, the meaning, the picture emerges. It's a giraffe, it's a house, it's a car, it's a plane, or whatever. Now that is a picture, actually, of the Christian worldview, where all the facts of our experience, from atoms to antelopes, right, the dots, are actually already related to one another in terms of a design plan, an author who has a plan and a purpose for the totality of reality. That's why Jesus could say, not a sparrow falls to the ground, not a hair from your head falls without my father. That is, this is a world for the Christian of total meaning, where there is a pre-established relationship. There is a meaning. Creation is meaning, which is to say, when the Christian looks at the world and does the work of any of the sciences, the special sciences, we discover meaning. We don't invent it. Just as the child discovers the meaning, because there was an author to the puzzle. 
Now, that's the twoist view. The oneist view of reality, though, is that you just have a sea of particulars, of brute facts that just are. There's no author. There's no design plan. There's no pre-established meaning or structure. So all you can do when you encounter that reality is invent a meaning for yourself. And of course, if we all have the right to invent our own meaning, which is where our cultures come to, then I can't tell you that my meaning is true and is better than yours, and you can't say that to me either. Because when you encounter the world, you give as well as you take in this view, you see? Now, that's probably the simplest way I can think of to articulate in uh, ordinary terms the distinction between these two ultimate worldviews and how the Christian has to approach reality. God has spoken and revealed himself in his word and has given us the coordinates. So that actually, as we, his word in creation, his word in the person of Jesus Christ, and his inscripturated word. Now, that view of reality has dissipated fast in our cultural landscape. Right, the view of reality that says that creation is meaning, that God is the source of meaning, that Christ is the truth, is dissipated. And it's left a great deal of confusion. You'll remember some of you, some of you I can see are old enough to remember this, uh, that in the 60s, the 1960s, a major war began on the Christian view of reality in the cultural sphere. There was the effort to remove prayer and Bible reading from school, for example. You remember that? And then in 1985, under the charter, the Lord's Prayer was banned as unconstitutional. It's interesting, isn't it? It's unconstitutional to pray the Lord's Prayer. Now, that's not a neutral approach to cultural life. Okay, that's a religious approach. That's what I'm trying to say to you is that fundamentally nobody can escape these religious assumptions. So we began to see a change in the God of our society, in the source of sovereignty, in the source of ultimacy. And this led to the casting adrift, really, of the human personality. And what it's led to is an, is an absolutizing, that's a putting at the root and center, of the feeling aspect of human experience. I feel, therefore, I am. I feel, therefore, I am. And under the influence of various radicals, European radicals like Michel Foucault and the Frankfurt School, we won't go into that, we were basically told there is no essential self. There's no creature made in God's image. There's no essential self. The human person, the human family... What we think about ourselves, these are social constructions. They are just socially constructed ideas. We are what we make ourselves to be. We are what we define ourselves to be. So when I was in school, this meant that they stopped teaching grammar, for example. Because grammar implies rules. We don't like rules. 
So out with certain standards even there in, uh, of literacy, because learning grammar is, well, that's cruel and unusual punishment, isn't it? Right? Because it speaks of laws and it speaks of norms. In fact, it was Nietzsche that said, once you get rid of God, you've got to get rid of grammar. So man is, more, is little more than a kind of artifice. He's not, we, we, we're not bound by anything beyond ourselves. That's how we see it in our culture today. Not constrained by anything beyond ourselves. Now that obviously contrasts itself radically from the scriptural perspective. The scriptural perspective uh, is given to us foundationally in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Gives us a coherent intelligible vision of the human person. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now there is a a total war in our culture today on this idea. That's what's happening. There's a war on creation. There's a war on the human person. There's a war on God. Now, there is no parallel anywhere in human thought to that starting point in Genesis chapter 1. It's totally unique. Everything that's distinct from himself, God makes. And he makes people in his his own image where the I... Right? The human ego, the I that you sing to in the shower, is established as this point of reference, this referent for all the rest of our human experience. Which is to say the human heart, you know, philosophers have tried to reduce the human person to all kinds of different things, to one aspect of human experience. But of course, whenever you reflect on anything, who's doing the reflecting? When you think about anything, who is the I that is thinking? This is the question that Descartes had, right? I think, therefore I am. Of course, there's a problem with that. Who is I? So as part of creation, somehow, because we're made in God's image, we transcend creation, we transcend our environment, in that we seem to be able, we are able, to reflect on ourselves, upon God, upon truth, upon knowledge, integral beings that are comprehensible only in relation back to the source, to the origin, which is God himself. And what this source, this origin in God points to, it gives us a unique human identity when we are distinct from other animals. The biological aspect of life does not, does not limit, does not, uh, cannot summarize the totality of our being, but it also means this creator-creature distinction puts a limit on the reach of our thought and on our legislative prerogatives, right? The fact that we are creatures and we're made in God's image and we're bound by laws and norms limits our prerogatives. We read in the book of Ecclesiastes, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. That is, there is a specific limit on the reach of our knowledge. It's limited to the immediacy of the temporal world of our experience, and we need God to speak 
to us. And God always did from the very beginning speak to his creatures. Now, the average person today that you will encounter, that I encounter, has lost sight of the true nature of the human person. And as such, what's happened is we've fallen into a kind of spiritual nihilism, a kind of spiritual valuelessness, a spiritual meaninglessness, unless I can simply define a limited area of meaning or spirituality for myself. We've entered a world of negation. Not a world of meaning, but a world of negation. One uh, Dutch philosopher put it this way. He says about modern man, he has lost all his faith and denies any higher ideals than the satisfaction of his desires. To him, God is dead. Modern mass man has lost himself and considers himself cast into a world that is meaningless in the ultimate sense. Now, of course, human beings do not live consistently with what they profess to believe. Okay, nobody is able to live with, without meaning. You know, we create meanings as a result. But in more popular parlance, the singer-songwriter Sting, you ever know who Sting is? You remember the police? Some of you remember. Uh, Sting, the English singer-songwriter, he says in one of his songs, he says, you could say I've lost my faith in science and progress. You could say I lost my belief in the Holy Church. You could say I've lost my sense of direction. You could say all of this and worse. But if I ever lose my faith in you, there'd be nothing left for me to do. Some would say I, lost, I am a lost man in a lost world. You could say I've lost my faith in the people on TV. You could say I've lost my belief in our politicians. They all seem like game show hosts to me. I could be lost inside their lies without a trace. But every time I close my eyes, I see your face. I never saw a miracle of science that didn't go from a blessing to a curse. I never saw a military solution that didn't always end up as something worse. But let me say this first, if I ever lose my faith in you, which is the romantic ideal, which is there in our culture today, which is to say that that the only meaning, the only hope that I can have, the only sense of security I might have is in a romantic relationship. And so people look for and, and, and think that they can discover meaning and find security and peace there. That comes through all of our contemporary music today. And all of this has meant that probably in 15 centuries, there's never been a time in the Western world where there's been a greater crisis. Or where we've been actually confronting in such a radical way our cultural decadence, our cultural collapse. And, and I'm suggesting, you know, in, in terms of the cultural landscape, that parched land picture that we saw, that that is actually an accurate description of where we are. We, many of us don't realize it. But that is actually where we are. We are radically uprooted. We are a dislocated generation. Now, lots of philosophers and social scientists and so forth have tried to trace the origins of all of these of this sense of religious confusion, of the decline of the human personality and so on. Uh, How did we get to the point where human beings are disposable? You think about abortion, for example, or the legalization of euthanasia here. The fact that in Belgium they're euthanizing children. How do we get to this depersonalized point? Well, it's rooted in this loss of the center, the root unity of the human person in Christ. Beings made in the image of God. 
where there is objective value. Now, well, if I feel like I want to die, well, you should, I should be allowed to die. If I feel I want to eliminate a child in my womb, I should be allowed to do it. If I feel this way about sexuality, I should just be allowed to do it. And so we have a bureaucratic, technocratic society where we've been sort of sucked into a democratic vortex of what the Christian philosopher Cornelius Van Til called disintegration downward into the void. This sort of radical idea that, I sh- that all, everybody should just be able to do what they feel. Everything's equal. Ideas are equal. Cultures are equal. Opinions are equal. In this world, we've come to the point where the reasonable and sane are said to be sick, mad, or malevolent. The cultural conjurers are reimagining the world all around us. We are facing the death of man as man in the West, because we are denying, we are debunking, we are defacing the image of God in human beings. Now, Jesus said this, what will it profit a person if we gain the whole world and yet lose our own soul? We're in a culture losing its soul. A soul that was rooted in the truth which is in Christ. Human dignity instead now is not rooted in Christ. It's not rooted in our creation. It's rooted in radical autonomy from God. That's what people think dignity means. Human dignity means radical autonomy. Autonomy from God, from God's revelation, from human community, from familial and moral obligation. We've got this depersonalized, atomized existence now increasingly where people can live in cities in apartment blocks and be utterly lonely they can have a million friends online and not be in real relationships our society has become radically anti-social in that regard we talk about social media but it's radically anti-social you sit on the train everybody's staring at their phone plugged into some media, some media platform, and kids are are texting each other across the room, sitting in the same room. That is anti-social. And yet in an anti-social world, ironically, we pass on individual responsibility for our actions into an impersonal society governed by statistics and bureaucracy and fashion and technology and social planning. And we say, well, I'm not responsible. It was the environment. It made me like this. It made me do that. So we want radical autonomy, and yet we want to blame everybody and everything else when anything goes wrong. And this issue cannot be fixed by any amount of state welfare, social planning, There's no technological solution. This is a colossal religious problem. That's what we're confronted with. In the state of crisis that results from this illusion of the creative freedom of selfhood, the creative freedom of selfhood, people are actually inwardly afraid. They're afraid. 
They're striving to find themselves without God, without truth that is found in God, in Christ. And uncertainty, fear, a casting about for any and all kinds of spirituality, mainly from the East, pagan spirituality, is what people are reaching out for. What was it uh, Ted said? Anything but Christianity, the ABCs. And we read in our media daily, don't we, people in the grap of this radical relativism. So what is, what is a human being? What is man? Well, what's going on was even unimaginable 25 years ago. Abstracted, generalized people reduced to self-created group identities. We don't know what a human being is anymore. No wonder we don't know what truth is about anything. And this has gone to such a degree that we're unsure if there are any human norms that transcend radical autonomous desire and my subjectivist self-identification. We're not confident of the intrinsic value of the human person, the pre-born, the newborn, the disabled, the aged, the sick, the despairing. We're so fundamentally uprooted, we, we are no longer assured of the scientific chromosomal reality of binary gender distinctions created male and female. The oldest institution known to the human race, marriage and family, we're not sure about it anymore. This confusion is such that some people are not sure that they occupy the right age group, the right gender the right people group. Some people aren't sure if they were gestated by the right species. This is how far it's gone. No one dare challenge these inner fictions either. You know what I'm talking about? Because you can cut the atmosphere with a knife when the subject comes up. No one dare challenge these inner fictions because all that's left of the human personality is the notion that this autonomous, subjective feeling has the absolute existence of God himself. So you cannot challenge somebody's self-identification. This is a destruction of any ability to make objective differentiation of any kind. If you can no longer differentiate male and female... What can you differentiate in the world? This world of flux, this irrational fluidity of all things, means that truth and falsehood, right and wrong, reality and unreality, it's collapsed. It's collapsed. And endless social indulgence and increasingly legal sanction is given to all these things. And yet people are gripped by sadness, they're gripped by fear, they're gripped by guilt, they're gripped by despair. And no amount of psychotropic medications given to you by the doctor is able to heal it. Technique can't fix us. You know why? Well, as my favorite philosopher said, it's, it is uncomprehended revelation of God that fills humankind with fear and trembling. We know we're creatures. God's revelation is all around us. It fills us with fear and trembling. Now we can deny that God is there. 
We can deny that human beings are his image bearers. We can press ahead in a suicidal course. But we are surrounded inside and out by the reality of God's order. We can't escape it. This revelation, Paul says, it's suppressed. It's held down in unrighteousness. And it still grips every person, this revelation of God. It grips us. We can't escape it. And we need to recognize in the midst of this cultural landscape that we've lost our soul. That's the challenge. You know, when I began in Christian apologetics, the questions were, you know, I'm struggling with the idea of miracles, you know, uh, or, um, you know, give me five good reasons to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, you know, that kind of thing. Nobody asks that anymore. What they say is, well, Christianity, that's, uh, that's completely irrelevant, isn't it? It's that sort of patriarchal, oppressive, colonial religion that, you know, hates homosexuals and, uh, and oppresses people. That's the objection to Christianity today. And I've done my share of debates on the existence of God. I'm not saying that people aren't still genuinely posing some of those more traditional apologetic questions, but it really comes down to this civilizational religious foundation today. Do you know the early Christians, the early church, they were called haters of humanity. Did you know that? In the first century. Haters of humanity. Well, in the meantime, there are all kinds of magical solutions on offer to fix this problem. The truth is so intolerable, though, to fallen humanity that even when it does take hold of us, we try and escape its claims in every possible way. You know, I've sat with people, I've sat with students, and I've sat with people who, uh, at the end of a long conversation about truth and meaning, have said, well, yeah, but, yeah, I can see what you're saying is true, but, you know, I don't want to be monogamous. Okay, well, appreciate your honesty. Because the, the realities fundamentally are religious and moral. We live, though, in an increasingly overreaching and arrogant cultural environment in which we're called to be ministers of hope and life. And sometimes it feels like all we can do is give a prophetic witness in the different spheres of life that God has placed us to the true character of the human person, the true character and nature of God, and redemption in Jesus Christ. But we have to recognize, this is critical that we recognize, that all of these things going on around us, all cultural life is shaped just like Every other aspect of our lives by beliefs, by religious worldviews. Very often when we're talking about the faith with others, we're not actually getting to the root of the issue. Okay, we're dealing with surface questions. We need to learn more and more as God's people to get to the root of the issue. And that, the root of the issue is we've actually returned, interestingly enough, to very ancient views in our culture of the world, to a pagan, essentially pagan view of reality. They used to, philosophers have called them manner beliefs, but the basic idea here is that there is a fluidity of reality between the personal and the impersonal. There's a mysterious life force that underlies everything. You know, C.S. Lewis talked about this back in the 1960s. He'd said, you know, you could, 
if in polite conversation you talked about uh, a, a, a power uh, coursing through the universe, being in touch with a deep spirituality and all this kind of language, you would command friendly interest. But as soon as you talked about a God who is personal, who commands things, who declares things to be true, who, to whom we are accountable, he says, everything goes sour. We have a culture now, millions in our culture, paying homage to such a life force. They're there on the yoga mats. They're at the alternative healer. They're there in the science classroom hearing about this endless stream of life that spontaneously evolved from some original mysterious point of undifferentiated unity out of which everything has emerged. And this was the belief of the ancient Greco-Roman world. And they called it fate. Fate, they were terrified of this principle. It led to the idea, actually, of the nobility of suicide in the face of fate. And very simply, when we take any aspect, you see, of the created order and we absolutize it as though it's some aspect of the divine, as though basically there is no creator God distinct from creation we're not made in his image we're not creatures made in the image of God in need of redemption who have fallen into ruin as soon as we abandon that some aspect of creation emerges as the Archimedean point as a point where people try and take their root try and take their stand but we've reached a point where we don't even know what nature is anymore we don't know what the human person is anymore you know, our, our forebears used to speak about natural law, natural law. You know, our pseudo-Christian secular forebears, they used to say, well, it's okay, we've got natural law. How can you have natural law when you don't know what nature is? In a post-Darwinian world, this became a radical problem. We have, we Christians can speak about creation, and we should speak about creation laws and norms, but there is no law of reason or something inherent in the universe in which you are a participant so that if you just think straight, you'll arrive at the truth. That would mean that I could get up in front of almost any audience and say, if you were as smart as me, you'd be a Christian. If you just tap into reason, autonomous reason, the Greek idea of reason, then you will arrive at these same conclusions. No, we tried to, for, for many centuries, we tried to Christianize the Greek idea of the world. Didn't work. Tried to synthesize it with Christianity. And now, even with our laws, our jurisprudence, our ethics, all you have is the experience of the people, the experience of the people which a new elite has to translate into law. So there's no transcendent law so we've got these, these another way of thinking about the creator creature distinction and oneism twoism is simply to think about transcendence and imminence god is transcendent and if we have a transcendent god and therefore human beings made in the image of god a sense of transcendence in the human person then we've got a, an ability to have an objective place to stand if you don't have that all you have is imminence that is the created, well, it's not even created for these people, the world that is, the cosmos as divine. And that means that laws and everything else are also just social conventions. Human beings have an experience in the world, 
and a certain elite have to translate that experience into law in terms of a social contract. And you can just keep updating that contract. So we have political salvation today. The fate, the, this world, this chaotic world with it, that is without ultimate meaning is threatening to crush you and me. So we need the philosopher kings, we need the social planners, we need the politicians, we need an elite to save us from ourselves, from our stupidity, and from our primitive ideas as well about God and revelation. In fact, it's so ridiculous and primitive that you certainly can't have state funding to have students during the summer if you believe anything to do with the moral laws and principles laid down by that God. That's banned. It's not that we don't believe in evil anymore, don't get me wrong. We just locate evil somewhere else. It's no longer in the human heart. Where evil lies in the world of today is in the environment. It's in the social spheres of the family and the church and private property and structures that allegedly create inequality, that war against an original unity of humanity. That's where evil lies. We have to get back to this oneness which is the true nature and character of reality, according to the pagan. I was a fly on the wall in London in um, British Parliament fairly recently. It was a Labour Party committee meeting, and they were talking about the disaster of the election for them and what went wrong. And one of the keynote speakers said, the problem was that the party needed to retur- a return to the conviction of the essential goodness of man, and that we'd lost that. You see, the, the issue is that we must now be saved by the transformation of our environment. So that if you, the salvation that's on offer in the midst of this chaotic world is that we must impose our idea, our meaning onto reality. And we have to, especially Christians, have to be saved from our stupidity. And there was a more original, before Christianity came along, the idea is that there was a much more original unity a more basic religious principle that governed human beings, and Christianity came along and ruined everything. And missionaries ruined it. Ruined the world by taking their Christian ideas everywhere. And we need to get back to a world where, well, marriage is abolished. Where family is abolished, of any scriptural type anyway. Where hierarchies are no more. Because if you abolish all hierarchy, you see, then women and children won't feel subjugated. And if you abolish binary gender norms, nobody's going to feel oppressed. And if you eliminate income inequality, nobody will be greedy. And if you open your borders to embrace all the Islamists Islamists coming back from fighting, they won't want to crucify Christians and behead them anymore, especially if you give them housing and a big handout. In other words, we can save the world by political technique. Right? This is not to say God isn't concerned about oppression and injustice and so forth. He is. But the idea is now in a chaotic world, meaning is not there to be discovered. There isn't a God, man, man made in God's image, God's norms and God's law, Christ coming to restore and redeem a fallen people, reconciling all things to himself in terms of God's purpose. That's gone. So all that's left is this chaotic world into which we must impose a meaning. 
And the source of all evil in that world is identified as anything that speaks of laws and norms and structure that would prevent people from realizing their own selfhood. Ted is looking at me like I need to shut up now because we need 10 minutes of questions. So I'm going to shut up. Let me just say this in closing. As man kills himself as God's image bearer, he languishes in the ruins of a broken social order. Scripture says that the I, the human person, is nothing in and of itself. Can't define reality, can't impose its order on reality. It only truly lives in terms of its reference back to God and the defining word of God and the true knowledge of God. In possession of that word and in in possession of the true knowledge of God, we are able actually to pursue life, to pursue truth, to pursue true culture making. Because that word reveals we are not merged with divinity or any primitive life force where law and social order are just emergent properties of nature. No, we are creatures made in God's image. And God has spoken. God is not silent. And our techniques and our politics can't save us. Christ alone can save us. It's been maybe a century now, approaching a century, where our culture has been pursuing the death of man as man. When you deface the image of God, man, that is when you try and redefine him, what are you attacking? You're attacking God himself. If you're God's image bearer, If you bear God's image and the human person is defaced and destroyed and dehumanized, then you've actually made a new God. You know, what's the second commandment? That's Jesus' summary of the law. What's the second commandment in the Ten Commandments? You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not make an image. Do you know why that commandment is so important? God has already made an image of himself. You. And he jealously guards his image-making project. Right? The human person, as they truly are, the hum- human persons in the family, which we're all in families, human persons in marriage relationships, say something about the nature of God. Say something about the image of, say something about who God is. That's why Karl Marx said, destroy the earthly family, and you will destroy the holy family. Destroy the earthly family. Then you can destroy the holy family. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus said, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Our culture dead in trespasses and sins, but when we hear the voice of the Son of God, we're made alive. We'll take about eight minutes of questions. Thank you. (laughs) Comments, questions, insults? Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Did you ever hear that? I said I described uh, the Western mind, Western civilization. What about the rest of the world? So, that's a great question. I think if you look at um, uh, much of the rest of the world, you see several dominant worldviews. Of course, number one, you see the rise of Islam. 
Uh, and uh, that's another subject, um, and I'd love to be able to get into, the, into that and the, the challenge of Islam. Islam is essentially a late Christian heresy. So the cultural power of Islam is rooted in the fact that it tries to ape, it tries to copy the Christian worldview. Uh, it borrows from it, but it's a radical distortion of it. Um, and because uh, the Islamic worldview uh, is not as inclined to bend and to accommodate as the de-Christianized Western mind, they are uh, riding roughshod over many Western cultures at the moment, especially in Europe. In fact, many think that Britain could be Islamic by 2050. So that's a, that's a big challenge. Then, of course, you have more traditional pagan uh, uh, religious ideologies, um, more pantheistic, Confucianism, Taoism, Hinduism, Buddhism. These are still found in various parts of the world. Um, they all come under the same critique of the creator-creature distinction being the issue, fundamentally. And then, of course, you have the uh, atheistic Marxist-oriented cultures, um, that, and I'll talk about this a little bit more in my next session, about how you identify the religious root of a culture. We'll talk about that. But you have more Marxist, atheistic-oriented cultures as well. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, the gospel is making tremendous inroads into all of those places, uh, in places like Iran, uh, South America, North uh, Africa. North Africa is a real challenge at the moment. Um, there are of course, places where the Christian gospel needs many more missionaries to go. But my encouragement to Western people generally at the moment is your mission field is right on your doorstep. This paradigm of Western missionaries going to take Christianity elsewhere, we don't have it here. So the, the center of, of global Christianity has shifted to the global south, very much so. So the, the dominant part of the world that is Christian today is the global south, not the northern hemisphere. Yeah. That's great. So, you know, the question is, how, how do we pray in this kind of a context? Well, I think, um, first of all, you know, when we pray, uh, we must remember that there are, um, that it is perfectly Christian to ask for God's judgment, God's righteous judgment in our culture. In fact, I would say we're living through the righteous judgment of God in our culture even now. Uh, the, uh, the collapse of the mainline churches, uh, the, the increasing dereliction of our culture is part of God's judgment. And in fact, that's what we see. And so we can actually, sometimes when we pray for our leaders, we want to pray that they'll be given wisdom, but we also might need to pray that they be removed and converted and so on. So sometimes our prayers are a little bit excessively pietistic and airy-fairy. We can pray that God will bring his righteousness and his justice to bear. Um, so I'm not despondent, and we'll talk about this in the next session, but I'm not despondent about where we are as a culture because when God judges something, he's getting ready to replace it with something else. And so I think we need to pray for our, uh, our church leaders. We need to pray into the life of the church. We need to pray into the area of education where the minds, the worldviews of young people are being shaped. And then we need to do something. We need to pray and do. Prayer is work, of course, but the work of prayer, and we need to do as well. But I, I think focusing in on, on family, the life of the church, and education are three critical areas to pray. Yes, sir. Um, certainly comfort. Sorry, so to repeat, the, to repeat the question, did everybody hear that one? So has, has wealth and affluence contributed to this cultural decline? Um, and I think we can say that <coughs> the answer to that is, is yes. Not because the problem is with gold, because what matters with gold is what you do with it. Uh, 
how much of that wealth is being poured into the, king, the, the kingdom work of the gospel. You know, for example, very quickly, Christians used to basically run, in Western culture, health, welfare, and education. And we did it with the tithe. All the universities were ours, almost all, all of them, hospitals, welfare, education. We poured the tithe into the culture. Think about it. When missionaries go to another part of the world, and my parents were 17 years in Pakistan, what do we do when we get there? Well, we build hospitals, we build schools, we provide welfare, and we share the good news of the gospel. It's all part of it. What do we do here? No, we think the state should do all of that. The government should do all of that. The civil government, it was what we should say, should do all of that. We've abdicated all of these areas. And so affluence, our affluence has meant that we have been able to, our disposable income is we become more focused on the cottage, the yacht, the golf, than pouring our resources into the work of the kingdom. There's nothing wrong with golf. There's nothing wrong with being at the cottage. But all of these things have to be placed in godly perspective. And we've not prioritized God in our giving. That's just a, that's a statistical fact in the North American church. How can the kingdom of God be built if there's no money? And we used to spend it better. Any other questions, comments, thoughts? Yes, sir. Yeah, I get it. So, yes, this is a critical question too because uh, uh, the question was, uh, should we be viewing democracy with some suspicion because it seems to have landed us in this place, basically. Well, of course, the issue there, um, uh, demos kratos, democracy actually means people power. That's what it means. Uh, the Greeks famously said, uh, vox populi, vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God. No Christian believes that. We don't believe that if 51% say it says something is true and right, that it's true and right, do we? Right? So we don't believe in radical democracy, the kind of Jean-Jacques Rousseau radicalism, um, that basically want, which is basically about the leveling of everything. Um, you know, the democratic impulse is to level absolutely everything. And the Christian church and the Christian family are viewed as aristocratic institutions. Okay? Because they have a structure and an order and a hierarchy. Okay? And so they are seen as anti-democratic. Now, that does not mean Christians do not believe in proportional representation, consent of the people to be governed. You look at more Christianized cultures than the one we live in today, like uh, British culture in the 17th, 18th century. You look at early American culture uh, where there was um, uh, republicanism, which is the state is public and everybody should have some kind of say in that. And you've got in England, the House of Commons, the common people, the House of Lords, the aristocracy, all of that's been broken down somewhat. It's not that we're saying that the nature of government shouldn't be that the people uh, have to have consent and participate in it. What we are saying though as Christians is that the state must also be under God, right? So the state in our activity, just as the church and the family and these other spheres of life are under God, the state must also recognize the supremacy of God, which our charter in a perfunctory way did. We're now told it's the dead letter. Um, but that, that means that that radical idea that law is simply the product of the self-reflection of human experience, that then an elite turn into law, positive law, 
That that is not the Christian perspective. That there are actually absolute standards and norms which God has established uh, that cannot be overthrown by the vote of the majority. Right? So we know we have to live in cult- cultures and contexts where that is not recognized, but what we should be working towards is a recognition of Christ's lordship in every area of life. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Feel free to share the material with friends, but do not charge for or alter it in any way without the written consent of the EICC. Thanks again.